Welcome to you all to the LSE. Uh, some of you, most of you probably don't know me. My name is uh, Fawaz Jerges, and I teach the modern Middle East here uh, at the LSE, and I'm also the director of the Middle Eastern Center at the LSE. And this event tonight is part of our uh, many events we organized uh, at the LSE, and really we hope to see all of you throughout uh, the year. It really gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Aziz uh, Al-Azmi, a, a professor in the Faculty of History at uh, the Central European University. Uh, Aziz tonight will address the theme, uh, Free Thinking, uh, Secularism, and the Arab uh, Uprisings. For some of you who do not know Professor uh, Al-Azmi, he has been a visiting professor at many universities, including Columbia University, uh, Yale University, University of California at Berkeley, and the American University uh, uh, of Beirut. Uh, Aziz has published widely on uh, a broad spectrum of intellectual, philosophical, and sociological uh, aspects. His works in English in particular uh, include uh, the following uh, books. Uh, Islams and Mod Modernities, Islams as opposed to Islam, uh, a third edition was published in 2009. Uh, his other book uh, uh, is titled The Times of History, and he has a really a superb uh, book that I would like you to read if you have the time, and I know you will. It's called Muslim Kingship, uh, Power uh, and the Sacred in Muslim, Christian, and Pagan uh, Politics. Um, I don't have the time to really flesh out Aziz's intellectual uh, uh, ideas over the last you know, 30, 40 years, but if I may summarize in very simplistic terms his intellectual journey, I would use the term uh, Aziz is an intellectual rebel. And forgive me for using this particular uh, term. Really, he's talking about free thinking. He has been a free thinker. Uh, he has constantly challenged uh, dominant social structures in my part of the world, um, you know, in the Arab uh, and Muslim world, and of course uh, the dominant norms that exist in that part of the world. Aziz, and I'm not exaggerating, he has never wavered, he has never wavered uh, from a belief in historical progress and a commitment, deep commitment to progressive causes. I think if I finally conclude by saying that he has been a relentless liberal voice who dares to speak his mind, the truth, um, and to do so in the Arab and Muslim world over the last 20, 30 years, it's not easy at all. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Aziz Razmi to the LSE. We're delighted to have you here. He'll speak for about 40 minutes and then questions and answers sessions. Thank you. Very, very much indeed uh, for worse for this uh, wonderful send-off. I hope it hasn't sent any, any false signals as to what you might expect from me. But in any case, we shall, we shall see. We shall see. Um, well, free thinking, secularism, and the Arab Spring. Let me, let me state first that uh, in proposing to engage you, rather than simply wishing to pander to you, or to lull you into a certain sense, or into the ease of certainty, 
I shall start with matters eccentric to the title of my lecture, and at two removes. The first is that I shall resort to the manipulative contrivance used in Brechtian theatre called Verfremdungseffekt, variously translated as alienation effect, the distancing or distanciation effect, the defamiliarization effect, or more recently, perhaps most appropriately, the estrangement effect. And that is, after all, quite appropriate. We are, after all, in a lecture, in a lecture theatre. And lecturing does have a theatrical aspect, which some of my colleagues uh, forget to not very much to their, uh, to their own advantage. Anyway, this is, <laughs> this is intended to alienate, that is to say, the Verfremdungseffekt is intended to alienate the audience from the characters in a play so they might be regarded critically from a distance. A cerebral contrivance intended to preempt any temptation to identify with this character or that. The second element eccentric to my topic is the 19th century. This takes us to a suitably unlikely time and place and to the British historian and statesman Lord Macaulay. In his History of England, deploying turns of phrase that are no longer regarded as respectable, but which are nevertheless still used in bar room and other private settings. He had the following to say about events that occurred on the 13th of December, 1688, after the flight of the Roman Catholic King James II to France, seeking refuge with his cousin, Louis XIV. And I quote, Legitimate authority there was none. All those evil passions which it is the office of government to restrain and which the best governments restrain but imperfectly were on a sudden emancipated from control. Avarice, licentiousness, revenge, the hatred of sect to sect, the hatred of nation to nation. On such occasions it will ever be found that the human vermin which neglected by ministers of state and ministers of religion, barbarous in the midst of civilization, heathen in the midst of Christianity, burrows among the phys all physical and all moral pollution in the cellars and garrets of great cities, will at once rise into a terrible importance. So it was now in London, when the night, the longest night as it chanced that year, approached. Forth came from every den of vice, from the bare garden of Hockley, from the labyrinth of tippling houses and brothels and the friars, thousands of housebreakers and highwaymen, cut purses and ring droppers. With these there mingled thousands of idle apprentices who wished merely for the excitement of a riot. Even men of peaceable and honest habits were impelled by religious animosity to join the lawless part of the population. For the cry of no popery, a cry which has more than once endangered the existence of London, was the signal for outrage and rapine. First, the rabble fell upon the Roman Catholic places of worship. The buildings were demolished, benches, pulpits, confessionals, breviaries were heaped up and set on fire. A great mountain of books and furniture blazed on the site of the convent at Clerkenwell. Another pile was kindled before the ruins of the Franciscan house in Lincoln's Inn Fields. The chapel in Lime Street, the chapel in Bucklesbury were pulled down. The pictures, images, crucifixes were carried along the streets in triumph amidst lighted tapers torn from the altars. The procession bristled thick with swords and staves, and on the point of every sword and of every stave was an orange, of course symbolizing William of Orange, who was to come to England very soon thereafter. 
That's the end of the quotation. The riot quietened down and played itself out, but that was not the end of this series of events. Macaulay continues, highlighting two elements, the rumor and the, misdirect and the misdirected action towards imaginary enemies, which are perhaps constitutive of riots overall. There, and I quote again, arose a whisper which swelled fast into a fearful clamor, passed in an hour from Piccadilly to Whitechapel and spread into every street and alley in the capital. End of quote. Fueled by, rumor, by the rumor of the murder of a woman by the Irish, Macaulay continues, and I quote, the capital wore a face of stern preparedness which might well have daunted a real enemy, if such an enemy had been approaching. End of quote. As it was, the whisper that spread into a clamor was that disbanded Irish soldiers were coming to murder Protestants, a rumor which had, and I quote again, with malignant ingenuity, been raised at once in many places widely distant from each other. Great numbers of letters, skillfully framed for the purpose of frightening ignorant people, had been sent by stagecoaches, by wagons, and by the post to various parts of England. End of quote. Finally, and as if with a sigh of relief and satisfaction, Macaulay makes the following observations. It is honorable to the English character that notwithstanding the, aver the aversion with which the Roman Catholic religion and the Irish race were then regarded, notwithstanding the anarchy which was the effect of the flight of King James, notwithstanding the artful machinations which were employed to scare the multitude into cruelty, no atrocious crime was perpetrated and the mob showed no inclination to blood. End of quote. There was great destruction indeed, but there was more. He continues, the roads were in many places made impassable by a self-appointed police which stopped every traveler till he proved that he was not a papist. Zealous Protestants assumed the office of inquisitors. It will be clear to all, I think, that the events in London on that longest of nights in December 1688 brings to mind very recent events. The spectacle of fevered mobs Fired by a cathartic zeal, the excitement of the riot and the loss of individuality as mass identifies with mass, the innumerable instances of groups setting themselves up as arbiters of right thinking and right behavior, the multiplication of bodies of self-appointed police, inquisitors, judges and executioners in one stroke. These all ring a very distinct bell. They strike a chord of familiarity and impart a sense of recognition, despite the fact that many of us thought that these were things of the past, past their sell-by date, past their terms of limitation. Let us take, for example, the, the riots, very recent riots following the Innocence of Muslims film, a witless and lowly satire. We see here the transfiguration of a trivial event into a major incident aimed at a phantasmatic group of targets entirely irrelevant to the matter. A certain Ghulam Ahmad Bilur, a Pakistani government minister, presuming to be able to define what one's sacred duty was, on the 22nd of September, offered $100,000 to whoever might kill the filmmaker, having in mind, in all likelihood, spaghetti westerns starting, starring Clint Eastwood as a bounty hunter. In Jordan, Self-appointed heads of Muslim and Christian clans took it upon themselves to declare the filmmaker's blood forfeit. Self-appointed police and inquisitors, 
and judges and executioners to boot. In Egypt, the president, Mohamed Morsi, dithered for a crucial 24 hours before authorizing the dispersal, the dispersal of Salafist crowds and restraining his own Muslim Brother Party from taking to the streets and enjoying the sanctifying excitement of the riot. There are many previous instances, all equally newsworthy, all involving a photogenic motley. The riots sparked by the Danish Muhammad cartoons in 2005 were, as we know clearly from Clausen's book, deliberately confected by groups of individuals seeking to build positions of community leadership here and there by what Macaulay called malignant ingenuity and artful machinations. The Rushdie affair, years before, awaited the moment judged opportune by the late Ruhollah Khomeini to get into, the, into full swing and cause the book's author to become Joseph Anton. All of these actors work to construct and consolidate a sense of insult and work on the presumption that what might pass muster in Tehran, Riyadh or Dhaka must, by some, extra, or some extraterritorial magic, really more a presumption than an efficacious magical act, that it should apply to Bradford, Paris and Copenhagen as well. The cultivation of an illusion and of phantasmatic targets. <clears throat> As I started with a theatrical reference, let me go back to the theater in order to comment on responses to perceived insults. It would be clear to any level-headed person that the reception of insults is correlated closely in these cases to the readiness, even enthusiasm, to receive insults. It would also be clear that it is not so much the perceived insult itself as its psychodramatic setting that matters. However innocent and maladroit the insulted party might be, transfiguring imaginative literature and satire, and satire is, however low, however elevated, by nature insulting, irreverent at the very least, transfiguring that into grievous injury is part of a setting, a psychodramatic setting in which roles are predetermined, not infrequently with unwitting, formulaic, and predictable self-parody. Uh, I will come to the invariant elements in the psychodramatic staging in a minute, as I move from the riotous theater to the Arab world, the Arab world whose most famous experts, uh, exports are highly incendiary, petroleum and profits, with equally, equally relevant to what I have to say, both. But before I do so, a couple of other comments. It does not seem incongruous to rioters and those who egg them on that perceiving no distance between words and pictures on the one hand and the incendiary and bloody exercise of sacred duty on the other in effect degrades the very God invoked as this divinity is imagined, is imagined to be one of acidulated morosity and an insatiable appetite for blood and disorder. And they do not pause for a minute to reflect on what might be learned from the simple fact that no embassies of Muslim countries are put to the torch and no Muslims held hostage randomly whenever one hears the Quran, from Quranic recitals in Jeddah no less than in Berlin that Jesus is not a divinity nor the son of God and that he was neither crucified nor killed. Nor do we see the godly folk of Asturias rioting whenever Christians are spoken of by some Muslims as being degenerate, unclean pigs, 
or worse. Now to the invariant elements in the staging of insult, anger, and riot. These form part of a package. The package having in past decades increasingly marked the lives of very many Muslims, many more than one would, one would have imagined a generation ago. I'm not suggesting that all those who regard themselves as Muslims, be they practicing or cultural Muslims, have affinities with or sympathies for these mass expressions of distempered rage. What I am suggesting is that this mood of ready enragement constitutes part of a drift, at once ideological and mass psychological, that has overcome Muslim educational, mass mediatic and communal organizations, Muslim politics, Muslim thought and forms of daily expression. In the context of this drift, the inclination to riot and to opt for militant jihadism and the milder tendency to opt for special forms of dress and coiffure and other forms of ostentatious piety are quite simply the more acute manifestations of a wider phenomenon. In this, the more extremist elements set the terms of the agenda for proper Muslimhood, not in that their writ is always and everywhere decisive or dominant, or that it implicates what Macaulay called men of peaceable and honest habits, but in that extremist expression is not only one limit of a wide spectrum, but is an edge of the spectrum which continually exercises pressure upon other constituencies and shoes at the center. With their premises, rarely contested in Muslim terms. In this sense, extremist expression and the temper it, excu it exudes might be described as hegemonic. The word hegemonic here being employed in a rigorous terminological Gramscian sense. This takes me into the medias res, into the heart of the matter. In speaking of a drift, one needs to be clear what the drift is from and to be able to discern some sense of direction vectored by social, political and ideological agencies. As far as the Arab world is concerned, and I shall have little to say about other parts of the world, this is a drift that has carried Muslim sentiments, Muslim pasts, real or imagined, Muslim forms of political and social expression, from a position of overall marginality, cultural, political, no less than social, and from what was in real terms relative political quietism characteristic of the first six or seven decades of the 20th century, to a much greater degree of coherence and self-assertiveness. It is a drift from the organization of political, social, and cultural life along civic lines, implicitly, if not always, avowedly or ideologically secularist, in which various manifestations of religion were one among many, and a marginal one at that, to a situation where the Muslim religion is made to stake totalizing claims for being not only the path towards reconfiguring the present and the future, both politically and at the level of individual behavior, but a stronger sociological claim for representing society as such. These claims set Muslims in opposition to others, cultivating a culture of special pleading, which has been manifestly successful in the case of Jewish groups, and making extraterritorial claims. These claims include issues of Muslim law and claims for the prerogative of censorship in countries that have no such provisions and do not countenance such provisions. What is being maintained is that we should have no truck whatsoever with the common thesis that what we witness 
in riots, no less than in the results of the Egyptian and Tunisian elections, that this is evidence of a return to Islam. Return is a rhetorical trope, captive both to common assumptions in Western countries and to the ideological claims of total representation made by Islamist forces. It is a trope with a heavy baggage of sociological and historical assumptions. That societies that contain Muslim majorities are in essence continuous with their past and, substanti and substantively homogenous, rigorously, then as now, that every Muslim is, then as now, naturally predisposed to Islamist politics. That Muslims are somehow by nature, then as now, ineluctably given to piety. That the lives of Muslims are, then as now, in essence managed by the institutes of ancient Muslim jurisprudence, to which social practice actually corresponds. And finally, that Muslims regard the Quran, then as now, as a total template for life in ways far more significant than the symbolic. One well-known British anthropologist studying Pakistani families in Oxford and referring to children reading at the dining table without asking a single question automatically assumed they were reading the Quran rather than doing their homework. Of course, to any level-headed person, and I always appeal to level-headed persons, every one of these theses is sociologically and historically absurd. Not least, as we see in them, the reduction of society to history, the reduction of both to religion, and the reduction of religion to a book. But these same theses do come to acquire a certain persuasive force when conjoined with the presumption, entertained by common wisdom and circulated by Islamists energetically, that Islam is truly exceptional, that it lies beyond the norms of change that mark human societies overall, and that Muslims for Islamists are not only exceptional, but also very special in the eyes of God and must be treated as special by all. The readiness to receive insult and the increasingly acute sense of victimhood correlative with it, simultaneous sentiments of paranoia and megalomania provide a psychodramatic setting which is hard to beat. Let us bracket the metaphysical assumptions regarding the essence of Muslims. They are irrelevant to social and historical analysis. Societies and histories are permanently given to rank disloyalty to their putative origins, whatever certain instances within these societies might claim. If we are to search for an explanation, we shall have to look elsewhere, in the direction that may cause some of you yet another cause for a Brechtian dislocation and resetting of perspective. We shall need to look at the secularization thesis. Now, the classical formulation of the secularization thesis by Max Weber, Talcott Parsons, and others was in the middle part of the 20th century taken up again by a number of sociologists and sociologists of religion, such as David Martin and Peter Berger, before his recantation. In brief, this thesis proposes that modernization, which needs to be regarded as an objective process attendant upon systemic social transformations, rather than as a checklist of elements that may be present present, absent, or incomplete, is correlated with the recession of religion from the central instances of life, these being politics, social relations, and culture. It proposes further that this is itself to be correlated with a greater degree of social differentiation related to the disintegration of what some like to call primary social and other ties with an emergent social structuration more responsive to systemic change. 
As a consequence, religion, which had previously been integrated into social action, is detached from social relations and becomes an element in the process of individuation and the creation of citizens replacing subjects. In countries like France and others, exercised by republicanism, the creation of citizens of a nation. At the limit, such citizens of a nation might be cogs in the wheel of a state corporately organized, as in national socialism or fascism. This is a nation of total citizenship, of citizens merged with the nation entirely, a nation with the profoundest affinities with Islamist conceptions of the body politic, a notion with the profoundest affinities with Islamist conceptions of the body politic, in which are conjugated populism with corporatism, deploying the same counterpoint of a faceless citizenry, totally represented by one political party or one state, a citizenry either appealing to its abiding essence or made or else constrained by social engineering to appeal to such an abiding essence. Now, viewed from the perspective of social differentiation, such a conception of Islam as a total socio-political and ethical superstructure corresponding to the nature of society makes perfect sense. Some representatives of the secularization thesis, and many others as well, did, without warrant, gloss this thesis, inferring, that the, that the waning and uh, inferring the waning and eventual disappearance of religion under the impact of modernization. Modernization, again understood as an objective, historical transformation entailing effective secularization, regardless of whether or not this is perceived as such. The common thesis of the failure of modernization is untenable, although note needs to be taken of the fact that, like all historical transformations, modernization is uneven as to its regional and milieu-specific effects, and this applies universally, even to the most manifestly modern of countries. Nevertheless, it is the secularization thesis with its stress on social differentiation that is able to account for the emergence of religion as an independent social instance. Religion was objectively and gradually disengaged, grosso modo, from its imbrication with various areas of life, crucially, education, law, communal organization, culture, and the cognitive instance, seeding the way to civil law, civil courts, state and private educational institutions, including modern universities, and modern natural, scientific, geographical, and historical disciplines and indeed modern ideas of social and political organization, including the modern ideologies of constitutionalism, nationalism, liberalism, socialism, populism, and many others. Religious personnel and their institutional bearings, no less than, the relig than religious culture, and indeed religion-driven norms of personal and ethical behavior, retreated to the margins, and I'm speaking of the expanse of the 20th century, despite having a symbolic official presence. This official presence was brought under the ampit of state ministerial control, which in many instances secularized, that is to say confiscated, as in Europe centuries before, properties held in trust or calf controlled by the religious institution. Official religion was managed largely under the impact, under the impact of techniques of canonical interpretation informed by Muslim reform of the latter part of the 19th century and produced edicts in conformity with the trends prevalent in modernizing and centralizing states, including 
insurance and banking arrangements, Freemasonry, and indeed socialism in the Nasserist period, and treaties with Israel under Sadat. All of this is, of course, highly inadmissible and highly anachronistic. Like the translation of Shura into democracy, it relies on a standard pattern of conceptual contortionism, which makes apologetic discourse possible. However, there was a parallel development. This was the formation of pietistic civic organizations, organized as clubs, ultimately with a decided political twist, and at certain moments when national socialism became a global paragon of national regeneration of paramilitary formations. The Society of Muslim Brothers in Egypt is a case in point, as was the Hindu nationalist Rashtriya <coughs> Swayam Sevak Sangh under Galwalkar and until today. Such organizations acted to condense, guide, and reformulate religious sentiments into well-defined and well-organized channels giving them form and a programmatic political and social direction, and yielding networks of organizational and ideological circulation and a self-referential consistency. Thus, from the possibilities offered by social differentiation, accounted for by the secularization thesis, religion as such was to become a specific, identifiable, and independent social and cultural variable, like other instances emerging from social differentiation. From the margins, the logistical conditions for moving to the center on the presumption of providing a self-contained template of personal, social, and political action was made possible. Religion became a program for total transformation. It was not only logistical possibilities that made this possible, but a crucial conceptual shift as well. Whereas before the end of the 19th century, the Quran was, apart from devotional purposes, rarely read on its own. Apart from commentaries and accumulated traditions of interpretation, and then only fragmentarily, an important shift towards a Protestant notion of scripture as a standalone object <laughs> appeared on the horizon. The Quran was read entire and on its own, apart from accumulated traditions differentiated from its long history as an abstract instance. It was thus possible to make the Quran yield all kinds of meanings, including figuring as a full and entire template for life, social relations, law, ethics, and to some, natural science. Scripture can be made to mean everything and to comprehend everything. And where in the heyday of Muslim reformism, such ex uh, much exercised by the Reformation and the figure of Martin Luther, it was made to yield mod modernist organizations, including defense of Darwin's theory of evolution. With the emergence of political Islamism, it became a source of political theory. It is well to note that reading the Quran as a fount for political theory and for a political program is a phenomenon of the 20th century and is not earlier. In classical Islam, such a reading would have been unthinkable. If Muslim reformers such as Muhammad Abdu, who died in 1905, might be compared to Luther, Islamists of the latter, latter part of the 20th century might be likened to radical Protestants, such as certain groups of American evangelists and, in a time past, Anabaptists. One need only compare the biblical literalism and primitivism of the Münster Anabaptists 
to a regime built upon similar lines by the Taliban in Afghanistan. In tandem with the modern ideology of populism, and let me stress that populism ought not to be, as is usually the case, confused with demagogy or just pandering to the demos, but is a specific ideological, uh, uh, ideological orientation which imagines the essence of a people and seeks to restore it, in effect, creating a people or a community according to a specific template. So in tandem with the modern ideology of populism, such a scripturalist fundamentalism becomes a heady sentiment and an impulse of formidable force. What some call the Islamist tsunami following the Arab Spring derives from what has been said, facilitated by formidable educational, information, and logistical networks. First, from Saudi Arabia in the 1950s and 60s, at a time when this acted as a component in the Cold War, as a cultural and social plank of the Truman Doctrine. Here, directed towards creating and socially regenerating conservative and anti-modernist and anti-socialist forces in the region. It also followed the policy of communalization, an anti-modernist political imaginary that became a political program which has had signal success. Malaysia is an excellent case in point. Much more grievous, of course, was Indonesia. The Islamization of Pakistan in the 1970s and of Sudan are also cases in point. So is the creation of Islamist anti-Soviet forces in Afghanistan. One should never forget the role of petro-Islamist cable and satellite television in the past two decades. From then on, these sentiments acquired a sufficient momentum and a self-sustaining and, and, and became self-sustaining, differentiated from the rest of modernizing and secularizing society and attempting to move to the center. They built upon conditions of social disaggregation, the decline in the efficacy of the educational system, the, rece the recession of the Arab state's civilizing mission. They also built upon the recession of state-sponsored cultural life, the increasing gaps between rich and poor, the devastating kleptocratic depredations of neoliberal economies, and a host of other matters. They built upon the recession of, nationalist, of, modern, of modernizing nationalist ideologies attendant upon military defeat, giving way to cultural nationalism and substituting, quite often, religion for nationality. More recently, among educated elements, they built upon post-colonialist and post-modernist anti-enlightenment modules. And they built upon the universal phenomenon known as identity politics, in which religion is often given priority over nationality in the process. <clears throat> Islamization came to influence a broad swathe of social groups, which had previously had no truck with the politicization of religion. An Islamic identity within the parameters outlined earlier rode first on the natural tendency to social conformism, first as an affectation, in time become a second nature and a habitus, and in due course imagined as the pre-existing Islamic nature antedating modernization. Just to entertain you a little bit, this is the graduating class of Cairo University's English department in 1978. You will not find one covered head. This 
1995, about two-thirds vacant. This is 2004. There are three unveiled women, probably Copts. 2012, men and women standing apart. Same department, same university. This is simply just to illustrate the point that I have been making. Here they are. So, Islamism becoming a second nature. Thus came the results of recent elections in Egypt and Tunisia, where it might be remembered that, apropos Tunisia, the elections of October 2011, in those elections, the Islamist Nahda party won 1.5 million votes out of 3.5 million votes cast from a total electoral body of 7.5 million. And thus, most dramatically perhaps, the increasing salience of jihadism, local but predominantly foreign, among armed opposition groups in Syria engaged in a dance macabre with the regime. All this, despite what opinion polls tell us. A 2011 poll of 16,000 respondents in the Arab world by the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies, which is now the premier polling barometer in the area, revealed that 47% thought that Islam was a private matter that should be separated from public life. 38% thought public life should be guided mainly by religion. Two-thirds were opposed to religious figures interfering in politics. Nevertheless, women are now on the defensive in both Egypt and Tunisia and seem to be recommencing struggles already won. And school curricula in Egypt and elsewhere are now in danger of introducing American-style creationism in biology classes. Without the foregoing, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it would not be possible to speak of the Arab Spring in any but a superficial way. But a further, far, <clears throat> but a further gesture of loyalty to the title of my talk this evening is needed. I have spoken about one particular aspect of the Arab Spring considered as the conclusion of particular developments. Arab secularism was mentioned as the background and indeed as the explanatory element against which religion was differentiated, as its condition of possibility. And there is, of course, much more to say about it, far more than I have time to address. Free thinking is part of the package also. Not only the wondrous efflorescence of free thinking in the Abbasid period, but also the significant islands of forthright free thinking in the modern Arab world in the past century and a half. I speak of islands as the preference was generally to ignore matters of religion and to speak apologetically about it, much like free thinking in Enlightenment Germany as opposed to France. There was in the past three decades a wholesale trahison d'éclair, whereby secular Arab intellectuals tended to pander to religious sentiment, thereby acting as auxiliaries to cultural Islamization. A specific case in point is the present president of Tunisia. I say all these things with a heavy heart, but also with a somewhat perverse sense that what we are witnessing and what I have described in the last few moments vindicate what I have been saying and writing since the late 1980s. As I said, there is much more to say not least about secularism and free thinking. 
But then I promise you I will do this next time Professor Georges invites me to the LSE. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you. As, as I promised you, uh, I mean, it was uh, a very provoking uh, uh, lecture, and I am sure he has raised many critical questions in your minds. And I hope your questions will be as provoking as his lecture. So uh, please be precise and specific in your questions. No commentaries, because time is, is of essence. We have about, um, well, we have quite a bit of time. So we'll take four questions at a time. And then is four questions or five? Yes, yes, that's fine. That's fine. Please. That's what you said about the opinion polls, I understood that as meaning the big minority, like 47% of people in the Arab world are against Islamicism. Yet you also say with these photos that it is increasing. I was saying that there is a power elite that has taken control of the Arab world. Thank you. Using Islamicism. Uh, please. Um, thanks very much for your talk. Um, you painted a very um, negative picture of riot in, in the first part of your speech, and I want to ask you a question about riot as a form of political protest, because I thought that your reading of the reaction to the, the film sought to depoliticize the reaction, making it look like um, a purely Islamic um, religious um, reaction to, to the film. But, but there's a political context here. I mean, you, you, you compared the fact that Christians don't react in the way that Muslims do. Um, so, you know, Islam has this special pleading. But in a context, if you look at the power relations at play here and, and, and the context of, of, say, US policy in the Middle East of, over the, the past few years, um, and in context of global Islamophobia, then you can maybe understand why something that might seem trivial, like that film, would, would create such such a reaction. And, and just one last thing, sometimes, and you also took a special pleading, sometimes when you, you when you're, say, dealing with a racialized context, like cultural racism, Islamophobia, you need special pleading or special exception in order to allow for um, a group that is downtrodden and prejudiced to actually gain justice or equal treatment. So, Thank you. Two more questions, please. Um, thank you very much, Fazil, uh, for a really interesting and uh, insightful presentation. Um, I have one comment and, and a, a question, question, please. A question. Please. Uh, okay. Let me make a comment. Let me make a comment. Yeah, comment. Please, please. Um, in regard I'm, the, I'm, I'm the good cop. Okay. <laughs> um, you said that there is a return of, of Islam, which, you know, the past two years have actually proved that there is an actual return of Islam um, uh, to the region. But at the same time, uh, when you say that there is the free thinking uh, coming hand in hand with the, uh, with the return or rise of uh, Islamism in the region, don't you think that there will be also a return of uh, secularists in the region? Uh, in other words, the Arab nationalists, that they have actually uh, uh, dominated the, the debate of thinking in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, don't you think that there, the, there is a rise also of the, the secularists in the region? Um, is this it's a question? It's a good question, right? All right Absolutely. Thank Please. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you very much for a fascinating lecture. The photos you showed very interesting. You show kind of a process over about 30, 40 years. So there you see kind of visually, you can see Islamization, basically. That's what the uh, photos are showing. But the Arab Spring are kind of more recent. So what is the relation to the recent change in politics, internal politics, i.e. 
Here is the RFC, the release of grassroots versus previous regimes that were more elitist, perhaps more pro-West, and they were more kind of the, uh, the fashion was to secular. Let's take the Shah of Iran. You never one mention of Iran. But in Iran, the Shah, the fashion was to look European, and all the photos look kind of like they look like film stars and Hollywood film stars. And uh, something happened there, and now. So what is the relation between that process and current revolution? Uh, addressing from there or here? What do you prefer? No, shall I? May I? May All I? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yes, right. Thank you very much. Um, all very important matters that were raised. Um, my time is limited. I'm, I'm on occasion able to uh, try to flesh things out properly. But hopefully we can take several rounds. So yes, 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 questions. yes, yes. <coughs> um, now, for special pleading, uh, Nadine, uh, power play, U.S. policy, <coughs> global Islamophobia, uh, it's, all, it's all true. It's all true. Uh, it is all true, but it is no excuse and it is no explanation. Uh, part of the global uh, Islamophobia is actually uh, hard-earned by many Muslim groups, by the way, that they behave. I must say this, and people must be, uh, must be aware of this. Much of it is actually self-inflicted. There are various forms of self-stigmatization, ranging from patterns of dress, to facial expressions, to behavior on the streets, to burning down embassies, uh, to cutting throats, and so forth. I'm not saying that uh, terrorists are only Muslims, but I'm saying that most Muslims are terrorists. It's an historical uh, process, yeah, though. I yeah. mean, you're ignoring the historical process of... Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not... No, no, I, I, I can see the power play. Yes. Of course, you cannot... Uh, uh, power play is part of every, of every conceivable political and social situation. Uh, the degree to which Muslims are disadvantaged in European societies, uh, which have not always been very welcoming, hmm, is... It's not something that I would that I would that I would uh, contest. Uh, but one other thing I need to say here: this is this is particularly pertinent to Britain, so pertinent to other countries that have uh, uh, denominational uh, forms of organisation, particularly Protestant countries, uh, Holland, uh, the Nordic countries, and so forth. There is there has been a tendency actually uh, to decide ab initio that integration. Is not on the is not is actually not on the table. There have been there has been state contribution to the uh, to the to the involution and isolation of Muslim communities and the formation of cultural and other kinds of groups. States have contributed to this. Muslim organisations have welcomed it and have built upon it. Um, I have no problem with uh, with, ex with with explaining anger in terms of uh, in terms of uh, of American policies or in terms of uh, global inequalities, but global inequalities are something which require particular forms of action. Now, to substitute political responses, to substitute for political responses, responses of the kind that I've been talking about, such as rioting is actually not a solution at all. What this does, and what emerged very clearly from the Danish cartoons uh, affair, is that these were events which had been deliberately organized 
along identifiable networks and people were deliberately whipped up to act in a way which was expected of them. So when this uh, Egyptian filmmaker, this crook, uh, what's his name, I can't remember his name. It's a crook. Yeah, the one in California, he was basically waving a red cloth knowing that you know they will that, that they will make for it. So there is a certain predictability and this is what I meant by psychodrama. There is a certain predictability about the reactions which are not political reactions. And therefore they are really entirely irrelevant to them. All that they do ultimately is increase the amount of Islamophobia that there is. And the problem of uh, the, and, and this is not only a European problem, it is also a problem inside Arab countries as well. Which I mean, countries which are in a variety of ways cleft between different constituencies around the question uh, around the question of religion. So special pleading, I, would not, I don't like the special. I mean, I don't like special pleading. But particular kinds of programs aiming at the integration of people of foreign origin in country in adopt in adoptive countries are extremely important things. But this is one thing, and special pleading for uh, excluding girls from uh, from sports, for instance, at school, and questions like that, is not something which I would expect, and it's not something which goes down well. So you have you have a situation in both in which both parties are complicit in this impasse. Both parties are complicit in the impasse. Um, return. I didn't say that there was a return. I said that return that return is a is a is a rhetorical strategy. I did not think that it was I did not say that there was a return by any means. I said that there was a confection of a new kind of Islam. I call it Islamization. There is a process of Islamization. It is not a return to a pre-existent Islam. It's the creation of a very new form, heavily infused with Wahhabism and quite a number of other characteristics as well. This is what I was saying. Um, and uh, given the kinds of political parties that are emerging in Egypt and in, uh, and in Tunisia, uh, and given the examples we have from countries like Iran and Sudan, what one is going to expect is that there will be put into effect programs of social engineering whose specific aim is the rolling back of objective secularization that had taken place. And this has this this there are there are there are two means of doing this. There are two mechanisms, both of them objective. One is elite circulation, the promotion of new elites, economic as well as uh, economic as well as political. And secondly, uh, the the uh, the education systems, the education systems which work in such a way as to create a counter socialization, a socialization which goes <coughs> against the grain of actual social practice in countries like, let us say, Syria, for example. This is what I was talking about. Return as a rhetorical defense, or as a rhetorical reduction of the, of, of the phenomena that we see. But there is no actual return. There is a concoction, the concoction of a new religious, of a new form of religion, of religiosity, which had not existed <coughs> prior to the, last, uh, to the last generation. The other half of this question is the role of agency. Hmm? Yes. About the role of agency. Yes. 
are we to deny the role of agency and say that Islamization is really a fait accompli? Or no, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Uh, I mean, there was the idea that uh, the, 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 the secularization versus the. Um, I, tried, I tried to propose that had it not been for secularization, it would not have been possible to construe religion as an independent actor in society and therefore become a political program and a political party. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by objective secularization. <coughs> secularization does not require a secularist ideology. It's an objective social dynamic. It's an objective social dynamic. This is irreversible. But what might be reversible is some of the, uh, of the consequences of the secularization that have symbolic and ideological salience to Islamist political parties, personal behavior, and so on, and, 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 uh, and, the, and the legal order. Yeah? This is what I'm suggesting. There will always also be secularists, um, at the moment, confined generally to particular elite groups, hmm? And Arab elites are, again, no longer homogenous. They are actually, they, they, there, are islands of, there are islands of elites deploying different kinds of constituencies. Um, some of these are secularists and will stay. How much impact they will have, I cannot tell. But what is incontestable is that social change in a variety of countries, Tunisia, for example, is irreversible, as it had been irreversible in Turkey. Hmm? Despite a, uh, a highly ideological uh, Islamist party. And how about various segments, social segments within yes. among Islamists? Yes. I mean, are we dealing with Islamists as a monolith? How about the Abdel Munem Abdel Futu, or the young Muslim brothers, or the liberal, the young 1917, 1970s generations, or 1980s? Well, I mean, it depends on the degree of their integration or of their future integration in the political systems now being formed. This will be the disaster factor. If they are to become yet another subaltern group within society, then they will rise. That is to say, a subaltern group with, with, uh, with avenues of social and <coughs> professional advancement blocked. And this is precisely what gave, right, gave rise to the ruling party. It was a question of blockage hmm, in, certain, in certain regions among certain leaders. This also explains the emergence of Muslim reformism, both in the late Ottoman Empire and in the Arab world. These were subaltern groups whose uh, pathways towards promotion, particularly in state service, had been blocked. You know, there is a, a very interesting sociological continuity in this, uh, in this But this time, then, it might turn against rather for the, the, uh, the question of Islamization. The, I mean, the matter is still in the beginning. There, is, there are no predetermined ends. There are always unintended consequences uh, in, these kinds, uh, in these kinds of settings. Second round, questions, please. Yeah, um, I just wanted to, uh, your opinion about the, uh, the future of a democratized uh, Arab world. Because this first picture of 1978, I believe it is a fake picture. Because we have no, not fake in terms of you you made it fake, but it is we have such behavior under a very harsh dictatorship. So if democracy brings us these other pictures, uh, what what can we do? Because these people, I, I live in an Arab country. I, I'm, I'm no more. Which one, if I may ask? Morocco. I'm Moroccan. Uh, I'm more or less aware of these issues, but people 
became really Islamized. If we want democracy, we need to accept that they get dressed like this. What is your opinion in getting them more secular? Very, very, really important question. I mean, is democracy incompatible with piety? Too much piety, even with Islamization. Can Islamists be Democrats? I mean, we need to address. Yes, sir. I just want to ask because it's been on. We've had tyrannical regimes for so long in the Arab world, and if, that's, and if this has not, in fact, stifled debate on these important issues, and has led to a reaction in various ways. And and also, I want to keep a comment on that. I, well, I presume is your pessimistic view on the elections of Islamists in Tunisia, and Egypt, but rather. Should we not view this as a necessary step for our part of the world to go through? And also, if I may say, if I would, if you could come on the fact that it's not necessarily in the back of the Islamists, Mohammed Mursi could only score 52% against the former Naki of the regime, Mohammed Shafiq, who won 49%. Should we not take some part in that? Thank you. Please. Um, just, I have a couple of questions. Why one question? Because we really need to move on. You can combine the two in one. <laughs> just one, question, one comment about the picture. All right. Because I'm from Egypt. I'm a graduate of faculty uh, of Cairo University. So in English department. <laughs> not English department. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I was going to talk about about the picture. Uh, I think that context is very important when we talk about anything. So when we talk about the elections, the results in Egypt and the results in India, <coughs> we have to talk about who is running against the Muslim Brotherhood. That's one thing. Uh, we have to talk about, I and mean, we're talking about 60, in the context of Egypt, we're talking about 60 years of a militarized state. There was no chance for anybody to develop an organized uh, opposition except the Muslim Brotherhood. So in the eyes of the people, this was the opposition to the old regime. So going to the Muslim Brotherhood was not only an idea of Islamization of the country, but more of, in the minds of the people, this represents the opposition. So they were going to the opposite of the system. It's a really great question. I mean, Mohammed Morsi won by the slimmest my margins my against... Family, my entire family voted for the Muslim Brotherhood. Yes. That's one thing. Sure. The comment about the picture. All right. You, you, you really got the question. <laughs> this is a 1976 class. This is probably the entire class. If we're talking about the number of students studying at Cairo University, since it probably be a thousand students. Currently, the number of students at Cairo University is probably 350,000 students. I studied in the Faculty of Pharmacy. My class was 1,800 students. So if you look at my section in the class, it's 100 students. So if you take a picture of my class, of the 100 students, they are older girls. Okay? <coughs> if you take the next lab to my lab, it's probably 100 boys. So if you take a picture of my class, it's not representative of the entire uh, 1,800 students. If I take a picture from another one, it's probably most of them are not veiled and they are still Muslim. So context in taking a picture. And if we put a picture next to this of Tahrir Square, and of those veiled women who went into protest when they were beaten up in the square, then we can judge about what's happening. You know, really subtle questions. The first round. The first round of elections. How seriously shall we take the first round? Secondly, let's remember the base, the social base of the Muslim Brotherhood between 18 and 25 percent. Literally, despite I mean, the secularists and nationalists and liberals won almost 65 percent of the vote altogether. And, as she said, I mean, Cairo University built for, what, 4,000 students now, you have 320,000 students. Uh, one more question. Yes, sir. Um, with the rise in Europe of anti-Islamist sentiment, especially with the rise of parties such as the Jordan <coughs> in Greece, 
How do you think the next five or even ten years will play out between Europe and the Middle East? One more question. Yes. Um, you made a reference to special pleading uh, by Jews, and I wasn't sure which part of the world and which period you were talking about and what kind Post of Post-World War II, non-stop. And it succeeded magnificently. No? Shall we? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <coughs> well, all of these are... are really good are, questions. Uh, now, correlating, correlating these images with dictatorship, I think, is really absurd and not called for. Um, nobody forced women in Egypt to devail. Nobody forced them to devail. I was talking about objective, historical, and social change. This was one result. It has no correlation with dictatorship whatsoever. If you look at the image of 2005, or whatever it was, was that under conditions of democracy or conditions of dictatorship? It was also under conditions of dictatorship. So the question of dictatorship has nothing to do with veiling or It has nothing to do with veiling or unveiling whatsoever. Uh, the only country which, uh, which uh, actually practiced a vigorous policy was Turkey, and ultimately this was a policy which worked out, and I think worked out very well. It worked out very well. It was state-directed social engineering, and it worked. Um, of course, you know, uh, historical actors are not angels, uh, so let, let us really weigh things uh, as uh, your colleague uh, uh, earlier on mentioned power play. Power play is very power play is very important, but then dictatorship has no correlation with unveiling with the unveiling of Egyptian women. Uh, the veiling was a result of Islamization coming from two directions. The action in a condition where the political instance had been obliterated under Abdel Nasser, much as I admire Abdel Nasser, but the political instance had been obliterated. The only thing that remained later was a secret society encouraged by the state as soon as adapted, working upon Islamizing society from below, while at the same time the state <coughs> posing itself or putting itself in the position increasingly of a pious act. That is to say, starting with Sadat, al Rais al-Mu'min, the believing, the believing uh, president, and so forth, with, uh, with, the, with, the, with, with the sign of prayer on his forehead, very ostentatiously. You had Islamization coming from both directions. And this was also correlated with very close relations with, uh, with, with the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia. Let us bear these things in mind. It's very simple to say it's dictatorship that makes it. No, I mean, it's like, you know, he beat me first. You know, things don't work like that. Hmm? This is this is uh, this is not uh, this is not a uh, this is not a game uh, this is not a game uh, among children. Now, the idea that Islamist that, that an Islamic face, an Islamist political face, is necessary. Why should we say that it was necessary? Why is it necessary to go through it? Quite apart from registering the fact that they are that Islamic parties are in power in a. In a, in, a, in, a, in a number of places, but why should this be seen as necessary? I mean, the the tenor of all that I've been saying is that you know one needs to one needs to make allowance and very large and very broad allowance 
for historical contingency, for unpredictability, for actors. There is nothing which predisposes Arab societies to pass through an Islamic state. There is no such natural predisposition. Societies have no natural predispositions. Societies are not of the order of nature. They are of the order of culture. They are not of the order of nature, and therefore they do not have natural predispositions as such. Now, necessary in the sense that it is a fait accompli, yes. But necessary in the sense that it was predetermined, then definitely no. Um, I think uh, my comments uh, about the, uh, the the action of a of a of a secret uh, society facilitated by the state is uh, is uh, the second phase of his question. Yeah, <coughs> namely, which one reminds incompatible? Me I mean, are you suggesting that Islam is being in power? There is an Islam is incompatible, or Islamists are incompatible with democracy and the tension. Right. Well, I mean, uh, any, I'm not saying that Islamism as such is incompatible with democracy, but what we need to look at here is precisely the kind of democratic discourse and democratic advocacy which is propounded by Islamic political There are two comments to make. One is that there is a very liberal voice, standard liberal voice, made in Europe. The other one has a different kind of ideological message. The other one is based on a claim, this is why I mentioned populism, is based on a claim, on this very strong sociological claim, that Islamist political parties actually represent the sum total of society. Therefore, the idea of democracy as a kind of uh, mirror of society, and the, the idea of the state as the mirror of society, rather than as a separate instance of political action, is an extremely dangerous one. This idea of a correspondence between society and the kind of state that rules it is, has always been associated with right-wing populist movements, be it in Germany in the 1920s, 30s, uh, and until 1945, in Italy of the same period, and in a variety of other places. So. Um, so there is no inherent incompatibility but I must make one further point that religions generally as religions as dogmatic uh, as, as <coughs> bodies of dogma are not, are not compatible with freer social freer forms of political and social organization that is, that is, that is uh, to my mind that is to my mind axiomatic now what renders Islamist parties like Al-Nahda or Al-Khwan Muslimi, the Muslim Brothers in Egypt, um, or even Al-Adu al since you are Moroccan, uh, is that they do actually claim that they represent the essence of the nation. This is an extremely dangerous idea. This is a very undemocratic, this is a very anti-democratic idea. Because what it, what it does claim is that all opposition to them is something which needs to be excised from the body national, right? Or marginalized, or treated as uh, uh, foreign interferences, or as, uh, uh, or, as, or as viruses, or as impurities that need to be purged from the body national. So that idea is extremely, <coughs> is, uh, is, uh, is extremely dangerous. Um, as, to, uh, as, to the, as to playing by the rules, <coughs> of a democratic regime, and let us not forget that elections are simply a, a, uh, are simply a device, right? It's an operational device 
in the system, which actually needs to go beyond the question of election. Many people speak of, you know, the uh, the last election, the, the last elections being the last elections. That is to say, there will be parties coming to rule. They will change the constitution in such a way as to then perpetuate uh, their representation, their claims to the representation. Uh, of, uh, of the nation. So it's an extremely complex question. You cannot say, is Islam compatible with democracy? The question in these terms uh, has no solution. Another round? Please. Uh, for the next coming parliamentary elections in Egypt, how do you see the division between the parties, considering what you describe as being a very narrow margin of win for the president in the last election? There's a lot of the secular parties, a lot of the liberal parties declaring. That's sort of like it's a it's a recognition that the Islamist movements in Egypt have reduced. Is that a fact? Do you see it happening on the street or not? Any questions in the back there? Do we have any questions? Yes. Please. Yes. Um, how do you think this um, social change that you mentioned? How do you think this social change influenced Saudi Arabia's influence in the Middle East as such? I would be very interested in that. Thank you. Please. Uh, I ask you how those who believe in secularism, and particularly the intellectual West, should in fact respond to this strong pressure towards increasing Islamification, uh, really, um, extension of religious within politics. Any questions, please? Uh, yes, uh, I just wanted to know what you believe is the relation between the departure of lots of Christian minorities in the Middle East and uh, the process of desecularization and civilization. You were you were disagreeing with yes. the professor a minute. I'm going to give you a, a minute to respond so we can. Well, I was just uh, the democracy is actually in democracy is the opinion of the people. There are. Some people, they voted for the majority, and some people, they voted against the majority, actually. Now, those who are in opposition, it does not mean that they are, they should be excited or they should be kicked uh, out of the country. You are saying that these people who were elected in Egypt, they, they majority, and they, that means they those who are not Voting for them, they should be kicked out of the country. Oh, I did not say that. He's not saying that. He, he, he is. He is contending that Islamists do not recognize the existence of rivals, political opponents. That does not have. Uh, shall we? Yes. Thank you. Right. Uh, before the next elections in Egypt, I am sorry. I can't. I really cannot say. Offer an opinion. I don't have. Nobody can. I don't have sufficient. <laughs> I don't have sufficient oracular resources to, be, to to respond to this. So, what's your gut feel, though? I mean, uh, I have none. Actually, I, mean, <laughs> I need to see what's going to happen over the next few months. Yeah. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia. This is an. In, this is a very interesting question. A very important one, as a matter of fact. Uh, Saudi Arabia, since the nineteen uh, since the nineteen sixties, has actually worked very energetically to build. Uh, infrastructural facilities of education, of culture, of information, and of organization uh, that have been, I mentioned this uh, in the course of my talk, that have been <coughs> deployed against modernizing forces in the, in the rest of the region. 
particularly Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, Iraq and of course, uh, and of course, South Yemen. Uh, this happened at the time of the Cold War. It was part of the Truman Doctrine. Hmm? A particular, it was a particular leg of the Truman Doctrine. That is to say, if you read literature of that period, you will find very often the point made uh, by particularly U.S. strategists, Walt Rostow and quite a number of others, that, uh, and this also actually happened in Turkey as well, that religion, the Muslim religion particularly, is are bulwark against communism, against socialism, against pro-Soviet policies. I've a book on that. It's called American Political Islam. Indeed, indeed, indeed. You know this better than I. You know this better than I. There were all manner of organizations built. I mean, one, one, one can take a very, very concrete case, the case of Jordan, for instance. Uh, Jordan became the place of refuge for fleeing members of the of the of the Muslim Brothers from uh, uh, from Syria, particularly. And uh, there was a concordat which lasted for quite a long time between the Crown and the Muslim Brothers. It has had ups and downs in recent years, but it has been a very very strong concordat, and that was part of the same process. The the amplitude of anti-secularist, anti-modernist literature written particularly by Syrians and Egyptians, some of them resident in Saudi Arabia, but not all resident in Saudi Arabia, is amazing <coughs> to anyone who would care to, uh, to, uh, to look at this. So there was an ideological war, a cultural war, and then, of course, there was the encouragement of building Islamic political organizations, which were <coughs> thought of as the most important factor in the struggle against socialism, communism, and by extension, a variety of other forms of modernism. And um, if you look at other parts of the world, you will find the same thing. The, the creation of Malaysia after a bitter civil war, hmm? and then the emergence out of that civil war of a communist, Muslim-dominated political regime, which had not been the case before, is very much a case in point. This was officiated by, by, by Britain, rather by the United States. The encouragement of forces of the same kind in uh, Indonesia, leading to the massacre of two million people, I can't remember precisely the date in the late 1960s, is again a case in point of that particular struggle, which was in fact global, hmm? waged in a variety of ways in different parts of the world. So Saudi Arabia played a very, very important part and still plays a very important uh, part in this. Not in Egypt. Huh? Not uh, in Egypt. No, in Egypt. Because in Egypt, there was the Arab leadership part. Uh, we we really have to go on. Thank you. Shall we? Yes. Now, the question of the departure of Christians, of course, there is. I mean, first of all, let us bear in mind that immigration is not confined to Christians <coughs> in the whole region. Whoever can get out gets out, right? Irrespective of religion. There is a greater, there is a greater proportion of Christians leaving <coughs> for a variety of reasons. One is the rise of Islamic political forces. Another is the fact that Christians tend to be better educated hmm? uh, and, 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 better, and better able to take care of themselves outside, particularly in Europe, Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, and so forth. So there are a number of factors leading to this. Um, uh, but the important thing to note is that really this is part of a, uh, of a, of a, much, broader, of a much broader tendency of young people to leave the countries uh, where they were born. It is not... Uh, uh, it is not. It is. It is not a Christian. It is not a Christian uh, 
affair alone. And I would personally be, uh, be grieved. I would be grieved if, if we did not, if we had a mono, if we had mono-religious countries, if Syria, for instance, or that became a mono-religious country. I think this would be actually an historical disaster. Um, now, as to uh, Western secularists, I mean, first of all, there are quite a number of things that might be done. One is to recognize uh, the fact that when speaking of Islamization, one is not speaking of a return to a prior nature. Uh, this is an extremely important point which is not very often taken on board and not very often kept in mind when people talk, uh, talk about the area. Secondly, is that there are very strong and substantial and uh, very highly cultivated secularist forces, uh, both inside and among the, the Arab intelligentsia in, uh, in, uh, in various European countries, less so in the United States. Uh, and that uh, there might be uh, an attempt to, uh, to, uh, to make connections with them. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, the work on uh, lessening the effect of commonplaces, such as, you know, Arabs are given to Islamic political uh, forms by, by instinct, by design, by history, by tradition, by culture, and so on. And so, on. so there are a number of things that, uh, that can be done, but you know, this requires um, a fair degree of very deliberate, uh, of very, of very deliberate reflection. Final round. I'm really surprised none of you has asked them the one million dollar question about, and he insinuated about Syria. So let's, please. Please, Doctor, I, I see, and how do you think uh, this uh, Syrian revolution will end with the spread of the free Syrian army and jihadists in Syria? So are you suggesting that the uprising in Syria is an Islamist-based uprising? It, it has become one like this. I've witnessed a lot of jihadists and uh, any, any other questions on Syria? So we can talk to Nora. Please. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. One of my students. I, I, I have think that given our uprising is more a struggle for civil and political rights. And uh, even if the Islamists prevail as the dominant party, despite the rhetoric that you are warn us against, you know, that all inclusive and everyone else can be against us, if they don't deliver on those civil and political rights, do you not think that our people have in a sense woken up? Do you think they'll reject them just as they've rejected the previous regimes? Uh, questions of Syria? Uh, well, not Syria. Uh, just generally on the question of uh, secularization and on the uh, and, and, and subsequent uh, Islamization of uh, uh, politics. I mean, what we're talking about is, is here societies that were uh, substantially rural until not uh, very long ago, and there has been a, a, a tremendous. Uh, uh, change, social change in, in over the past 50 years, which was not uh, reflected in the uh, dominant uh, culture uh, of the previous sort of dominant political forces in, in there. Now you've got a, a, a new set of social forces and uh, new cultural uh, uh, forces emerging uh, with this. Why, uh, why? Very, very important yeah. question. How yeah. the country, countryside has taken over the cities? Yeah. And the you know, this is this is one with uh, with very with very uh, close uh, connections uh, with the question asked about it, cities. It, it, it is really what has happened to great mm -hmm. urban, I mean, uh, cultural production and social questions are Syria. Anyone, please. Um, when you're looking at Syria, if you look at what happened. 
the young, educated leaderships acting at the local level. <coughs> leaving, the, uh, leaving the field open, that is to say, <coughs> leaving eligibility for leadership to very conservative forces in place. The heads of families, heads of clans, and so on and so forth, which then, of course, uh, acquire uh, a salience which they, uh, and a pertinence which they did not have before. And it was, in fact, this element which was the first to which Bashar al-Assad appealed at the very beginning when he was trying to make some kind of an arrangement. He calls in Sheikh X and Sheikh Y and tries to, you know, uh, the school here, some employment there, you know, to make local arrangements at... Um, now, with, with these, given these features, that is to say, the fragmentation of the country, the security fragmentation of the country, um, and the obliteration or the near obliteration of much of the educated, dynamic, uh, forward-looking uh, leadership, it is not at all surprising to find, particularly in areas which have seen recent immigration from the countryside. I mean, we don't have really the urbanization of the countryside. We have ruralization of cities. Uh, ruralization of cities where uh, quite, uh, where some, some, some previous kinds of relations really exist and people tend to to congregate in, 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 given, in given areas and given, uh, in given districts. Um, this has had the effect of, in addition to the policy of maximum force from the very beginning, which by its own nature led to the militarization of opposition, we find that the operational element on the ground, I'm not talking about everyone, talking about of the main operational element on the ground, the main armed operational element, tends now increasingly to be marked by manifestations of jihadism, local as well as foreign. Hmm? Quite a number of people coming <coughs> from a variety of countries, some from Libya, some from Britain, and uh, and others, some Chechens, and you know, from a variety of other places. And so this is giving the opposition a direction it did not have in the beginning, and this is, and it is precisely the case that it has been hijacked. <coughs> it has been hijacked by the regime which has now almost succeeded in creating a dream opposition, that is to say the, the kind of opposition it would have wanted, right? For propaganda purposes and for ease of, uh, of, uh, of uh, and for ease of action, and on the part of the operation, militarily, the military operational element within uh, within uh, within the uh, within the opposition. Um, now, of course, there are all kinds of constituencies on both sides, but the idea that the uh, from the time of Hafiz al-Assad. There was a favor given to minorities, and that we have a coalition of minorities, does not strike me as adequately representing <coughs> the regime as it exists. Um, first of all, there was no, there was little discrimination against minorities on a, on a, on a, on a daily basis. There were patrician families of different denominations who ruled the roost. And who got preferential treatment in the in the within 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 the state system? 
What happened, particularly now, is that with a process very, very much accelerated, is that the regime has quite deliberately confected a very clearly sectarian, a very clearly sectarian uh, elements within the in the in the contest in the in the national contest in the national contestation, and quite explicitly. Um, so uh, Christians were not disadvantaged. Patrician Christians were just like Patrician arts. <coughs> Uh, the 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 richer the, the richer the richer Druze uh, would normally be resident in the cities. Many of them entered the Ba'ath Party. Many of them were, of course, had very senior very senior positions in the Syrian army and the bureaucracy prior in the 1950s, for instance. So, um, and this is a country, you know, Syria, which has had the uh, Christian prime minister and, and the the. the this actual, uh, the classification now, which is now becoming more, more, uh, more relevant, involves quite a lot of recasting memories, and indeed, in some uh, in some cases, inventing memories. This happened in the case of Iraq, when Iraqis in the in the in the early 1990s would start saying that you know they were uh, they were beaten up at school because they were Shia rather than because they were awkward or unpleasant or or easily bullied, you know, this, this is the kind of, uh, this, is, uh, this is the kind of thing that we learn as Hanif Kippur, for instance. So we really need to bear this in mind and not to think of a kind of uh, utopia of... Uh, he didn't like that. Uh, he didn't like that. He did. In his memory. Huh? Uh, uh, the idea that there was some kind of utopia where, uh, where minorities were at last able to live uh, comfortably, the country doesn't really uh, strike me as being uh, an accurate description uh, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, <coughs> situation. Now finally, um, the, uh, the external opposition, I agree with the external opposition, is, has not proved itself to be effective in any, in any, in any way whatsoever. In any way whatsoever. <coughs> and of course, as one can expect, the external opposition depends on sponsor, is sponsored by a variety of forces, and it's allied to a variety of forces. Uh, but it has had very little impact on the ground. Um, which actually then adds to the pertinence of what I was saying about the, the kinds of transformations uh, that are overcoming the, the armed uh, opposition. Uh, finally, the Islamist party's capacities to evolve. I think everybody has a capacity to evolve. I think they will evolve if they feel compelled. If they don't feel compelled to evolve, they will not. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mr.